Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So the beginning of the Jeffrey Epstein document dump and by extension, clientless dump began yesterday. Uh, it is uh, not exhaustive, but some 40 documents were made public by the court, and they include uh, uh, excerpts from depositions as well as emails, including between Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, I want to start, though, just with you know some of the stuff that's making the headlines yesterday because I think some of it needs a response. For example, headline in the Post that uh, Jeffrey Epstein told his brother Mark that if uh, people knew what he knew about the 2016 presidential candidates, that would be Hillary Clinton or Clinton Incorporated and Donald Trump, they'd have to cancel the election. If if here the direct quote, if if I said what I know about both candidates, they'd have to cancel the election. That's what Jeffrey told me in 2016. Mark Epstein told the New York Post. And there's this. uh, insinuation of culpability, which has not been established for any of the people named, uh, including a friend of the show, Alan Dershowitz. There are more specific allegations in the direction of Dershowitz, in the direction of Prince Andrew. But again, it is important to note that there are names and there are names on flight logs and there are allegations that are made, but none of this has been substantiated to this point other than what we know about Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell's sex trafficking operation. So we know there are clients, and we know some of those names who've been released are more likely than not to be some of those clients, but we just can't, at this point, I think, responsibly separate who's who. Is that fair? Yeah, 312-642-5600, answer line. You can reach us on our text line, 64636. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Like Robert... uh, JFK Jr., or Robert Kennedy Jr., excuse me, he and his wife and family has flown on Epstein's plane multiple times. And he said that he goes, I didn't go to the island, but he, I've been, I'll be on the flight log. Yeah, he addressed that straight away. Right. So some people are hiding. They're just, you know, giving blanket denials or they're not making any, uh, uh, res- they're not offering any response in in the direction of the allegations or the their appearance on the flight logs, for example. RFK Jr. is an exception. By the way, uh, getting back to what uh, Mark said to Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey said to Mark, his brother, allegedly, alleged by Mark. And it's interesting he says that, like because, of course, the insinuation is somehow Trump was participatory here. No, he was not. <laughs> uh, well, it, I mean, he came out many times and said, I once I found out who that guy was about, because... Epstein had hit on one of his yeah. employees, and he wasn't, you know, like, he was not underage, but, you know, just barely legal. And he said, nah, 
this is not a good dude. Forget what Epst- forget what Trump said about it. Set that aside. Okay. Um, Brad Edwards is an attorney who has represented some seventy of uh, Epstein's trafficking victims, and here's what he had to say about uh, Trump, uh, and you know any particular. Uh, knowledge that he had about uh, Trump's relationship with Epstein and any participation in this illicit activity. Brad Edwards. Nothing at all. The only thing that I can say about President Trump is that he is the only person who, in 2009, when I served a lot of subpoenas on a lot of people, or at least gave notice to some pretty uh, connected people that that I wanted to talk to them, He is the only person who picked up the phone and said, let's just talk. I'll give you as much time as you want. I'll tell you what you need to know. And was very helpful in the information that he gave and gave no indication whatsoever that he was involved in anything untoward whatsoever, but had good information that checked out and that helped us and that we didn't have to take a a, a deposition of him. That was in 2009? That was in 2009. So, do you know if there's any truth to James Patterson's claims that Trump kicked Epstein out of Mar-a-Lago? I've definitely heard that. So uh, there you go. I mean, you know, the D.C. smear machine is going to be focused solely on on anything that even uh, re- remotely relates to Trump when it comes to something as important as this and and sick as this human trafficking operation was. And so I just wanted to start right there so that we can uh, lay a foundation for the conversation that goes forward when it involves, say, former President Bill Clinton and others, if you want to play that game, as, of course, we know the D.C. press corps will. Well, I I mean, they should mention, I mean, did you see the picture of Bill Clinton getting a, a, a neck rub by this woman in one of the airports, you know, who was underage at the time and most of what was released yesterday has been reported. Right. I mean, so there's slight law, or who, so he was mentioned. Bill Clinton was mentioned 73 times. There's a there's I mean, there's some more specifics in a 2011 interview. Virginia Jufri, uh, whose um, civil suit is what has brought all of this forward. Ultimately, she mentioned Clinton's close relationship with defendants and uh, that's Glenn Maxwell and Epstein. She made no allegations of illegal actions by Clinton. Um, Ms. Uh, Maxwell, in her deposition, raised Jufri's comments about President Clinton as one of those obvious lies to which she was referring to her public statement that formed the basis of the suit. Apart from the defendant and Mr. Epstein, former President Clinton is a key person who can provide information about his close relationship with defendant and Mr. Epstein and disprove Maxwell's claims. And this is part of the uh, assertions that were made. Um, did you ever talk uh, to did did Jeffrey ever talk to you about Bill Clinton? And um, the response is. He said one time that Clinton likes them young, referring to girls. This is Jufri's testimony. Well, you know, in deposition. Right. Um, so but. But does that uh, is that uh, close the case on uh, Clinton? No, I I don't think so. But it does raise questions 
for them to answer. And, of course, Clinton has also issued these sort of denials. I mean, yes, I was on the planes, but no, I never went to the island, and no, I never engaged in any of this illicit activity and so on and so forth. That's what you get from from um, even uh, Prince Andrew. You right. get the same sort of thing. His He may be the least credible of all. But there are billion billionaire hedge fund uh, managers like Glenn Rubin named and others. And you're uh, Tom Pritzker. He's right. specifically named. And uh, the uh, uh, the allegation is that he the, the allegation is made by one of the girls that he had sex with her, that she was essentially procured for Tom Pritzker, the chairman of Hyatt Hotels. The Pritzkers keep turning up everywhere. Harvard, it's Penny, Illinois, it's J.B., Tom in the Epstein situation but but again that's an allegation that's denied and that's what we know at this point three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line the one thing i have to say about all this and I, I i can't recall but i'm sure when we've spoken about this before all these powerful people uber wealthy people I mean, have you ever been around uber wealthy people or or like in and I just mean like you know, bumping into them or a cocktail. I mean, like, Hang have you ever them, yes. had, had like a, 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 a relationship with them? I mean, it's been my ex- I've had, I, I have a few, uh, you know, a few instances. It's been my experience that they have people who check things out. Yeah, they have um, people who make sure they're making the right decision. Well, the, they have the, handlers. Well, the, well, but also their spidey senses are tingling because everybody comes to them for money or for a favor or for this or for that or just for the status of knowing this person. And, you know, so their spidey senses tingle. They want to know what's up. They want to know, you know, we're going, what is exactly being pitched? Where exactly am I going? Who is this guy? I mean, I know that they can be duped, a la what we saw with Bernie Madoff. Oh, you know. These celebrities have invested their money with Bernie Madoff, and they rave about him. So the next celebrity up and the celebrity after that celebrity and so on and so forth all invest in Bernie Madoff. So I, I understand there can be a cascading effect because the people, some of these people move in packs. But, I, I mean, none of these people suspected – I mean, again, I'm talking about the ones that – and we don't know yet, but I hope we'll find out – the ones that didn't participate – in this human trafficking scheme, none of them saw anything curious about Jeffrey Epstein. None of us. Where does his money come from? What is he doing? What happens on this island? Right. Who is this guy? And what? Who is? And the people around him? And why are there always young girls? And this? And 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 after his prostitution conviction in um, in West Palm Beach, the first part of this century. What? Well, no. You know, I mean, that's the thing that always sticks with me on this. And again, based on what we know now, it's just really people maybe distance themselves from him like Trump. But nobody thought there was anything more nefarious going on than this guy was just sort of a uh, influence peddling sleaze merchant. Oh, so weird because Melinda Gates was interviewed on, God, was it 60 Minutes? I can't remember. And they asked her about Jeffrey Epstein. She said, well, I told my husband, no. You cannot see him anymore. 
And then the, the, she pressed on about their relationship. She, that's all I'm going to say about that. I don't want to talk about it. Anymore. Yeah, he basically, she basically said, I remember that. She basically said, you have to ask him. Yeah. But, I mean, again, but, but, I mean, Melinda Gates, she's not a heroine in this story. No. Well, if why did you say you can't see him anymore? And what did you <laughs> think was happening? And if you thought what was happen- if you thought what we now know was happening was happening, then why didn't you say anything? I mean, those poor girls, they were sex slaves. His house in West Palm, my God, it was a, it was a slave headquarters. He had, all, he had to have multiple massages every day, and he wanted younger girls and younger girls, and they would go out and, and recruit. And then the older girls would find these other younger victims, and it was just a whole, it was a whole industry. And then Epstein dies of suicide in prison, yeah, right. and one of his uh, recruiters, this uh, Brunel cat in France, dies in prison by suicide again as well. Mm-hmm. Sure, um, mm-hmm. There, there was a good. There was this good documentary series. It was. I, I, it's a few it's years Netflix, old now. Right? Um, I, I think it was Netflix. It's four or five episodes, maybe, um, about the whole genesis of Jeffrey Epstein and some of the questions that uh, we've been raising for years now that remain unanswered. That's worth checking out. Rich in Indian Head Park. You're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. What did you guys think of the comment that Jimmy Kimmel made when uh, Aaron Rodgers was really kidding that he might be on this list? And uh, Kimmel said, oh, Rodgers put his family in, in, uh, in jeopardy of some sort. How ridiculous is this guy after all the comments he's made about people over the years? Thanks, for the, thanks for the coverage. Yeah, I mean, Kimmel's a douche. Um, but um, and and by the way, I mean Kimmel with the the moral high ground, uh, him and frankly Adam Carolla, you know the host of the Man Show with the Juggies, women on trampolines, and now Jimmy Kimmel's a feminist. Just I mean, just Jimmy spare really me. Threatens to sue him. Come on. Yeah, I mean he I, vilified I don't know. Aaron Rodgers and made him like enemy. If he shows up at the hospital, he's not vaccinated. Don't help him. Help the vaccinated first. Was Shut Rogers up. kidding though about Jimmy Kimmel? Oh boy. Was he? I don't know. Well, it's, he seems very a little edgy there, don't you think? I don't know. And even the suggestion. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. More fallout from the uh, 
ouster of Claudine Gay as president of Harvard, including from Claudine Gay, writing in the New York Times, what happened? What just happened at Harvard is bigger than me, Claudine Gay. Oh, now she's a martyr. Of course, this is the next uh, stage of the politicization of the left's uh, attempt to rewrite history to politicize this in the direction of identity politics, because, of course, that's what they must protect on campus and in larger society. So that's what they're. That's that's what they have uh, moved to do in. uh, No uncertain terms. And so this is more than about Harvard. It's more than about Ivy League. It's really a case study. About identitarian politics and these. Marxists that have seized control of all of our institutions, civil and governmental, effectively, you know, control of some governor's mansions and and legislatures and the House of Representatives, notwithstanding, I mean, the left has cultural control of America, and they aim to not just protect it against incursions. But to come over the top against any such uh, losses they suffer, like the Ivy League, not just Claudine Gay, but also McGill at Penn, too, and just the uh, firestorm they unleashed these uh, status university presidents with their testimony before that House committee about the anti-Semitism on campus. So it's a case study. Think past Harvard. Think past the Ivy League. Think past even higher education. Claudine Gay and her op-ed. This is priceless. Should we get like sad music playing in the background? Like, oh, no, look uh, at me. I'm so. Yeah, it's it's victim. not. Well, that's that's it. But it's 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 you know it's um, it's passive aggressive. It's not maudlin. This is a make no mistake about this. You know, this is uh, this is an act of aggression. These sorts of characterizations and uh, contextualizations that are offered by people like Claudine Gay. My hope is that by stepping down, I will deny demagogues. She's on the attack here. Deny demagogues the opportunity to further weaponize my presidency in their campaign to undermine the ideals animating Harvard since its founding. Excellence, openness, independence, and truth. How dare you? Is the, is the uh, Harvard to English translation. I must offer a few words of warning as I depart. The campaign against me was more than one university and one leader. This was merely a single skirmish in a broader war to unravel public faith in pillars of American society. Those in charge of these institutions are not responsible for the loss of faith. Those questioning the institutions, those detailing the abuses and offenses of the institutions, they are the bad actors in this story, you see. Campaigns of this kind often start with attacks on education and expertise because these are the tools that best equip communities to see through propaganda. But campaigns don't end there. Trusted institutions of all type, from public health agencies to news organizations, they're all in it together, and they are. Parenthetical remark by me. Trusted institutions of all types 
will continue to fall victim to coordinated attempts to undermine their legitimacy and ruin their leaders' credibility. For the opportunities driving cynicism about our institutions, no single victory or topple leader exhausts their zeal. She describes um, that she fell prey to a well-coordinated trap. Right. She is the victim of this... uh, these barbarians at the gates of our hallowed institutions, and sometimes they get in and they take over the administration office. That's what we're to believe. And of course, it's not an identitarian hustle if you don't invoke identity. Of course. And for that, what we, do we have, have Dan. We have Mara Gay. I don't think any relation. Mm-hmm. She is a incredibly. But just as incredibly as Claudine Gay is was the president of Harvard, Mara Gay is a board member at the New York Times, editorial board member. Of course she is. Here's what she had to say about Claudine Gay's demise. Listen very closely. The thing that really disturbs me is the unrelenting campaign from the right and from some mm-hmm. conservative activists to... Uh, slander, discredit, and ultimately, I, I guess, uh, you know, somebody used the phrase, uh, we've claimed a scalp, I said, I think, on uh, social media, you know, to essentially unseat gay and other presidents as well um, when they don't like, uh, you know, the, not just the handling of uh, the horrific attacks on Israel on October 7th, the way that that was handled on campus, but really anything else uh, that they don't like about uh, not just these presidents, but actually what they would call wokeism on campus. Mm -hmm. So this is really an attack on academic freedom. It's an attack on uh, people who are pluralists and believe that you should bring people from all over the world together uh, of diverse backgrounds and that you, you actually have more scholarly rigor and, and more um, value can be uh, brought by having people from different backgrounds. This is an attack on diversity. This is an attack on multiculturalism and on many of the values that a lot of us hold dear. And in fact, anybody really who is around my age in their 30s who went to any uh, public, major public university or private university in this country, you know, these are values that are very important. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that's why these presidents are under attack. That's why Claudine Gay was under attack. The fact that she's a black woman and the first person uh, who is a, a black American to lead Harvard uh, only added to their thirst to dethrone her. And, you know, those attacks, you don't have to, I don't have to say that they're racist because you can hear and see the racism, the attacks when people like Vivek Ramaswamy say, uh, you know, uh, okay, this is, this is a problem about diversity and hiring. I mean, this is racism as well. So there's a lot of different layers here, but I don't want to miss the attacks on academic freedom. And I think it's much easier to target women or women of color, um, but ultimately it's not going to stop there. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 646-36DA, turnkey.pro text line. I don't, I don't want to say it's racist, but it's racist. Um, yeah, of basically, course. that's what she said. 
Of course, right. She shouldn't um, have had the job in the first place. I mean, she's never published a book, and in 26 years, she only published 11 articles, and half of those were plagiarized at some portions of those articles, which, uh, by the way, is just sloppy attribution, Dan. So, um, so it's racist. It's easier to be racist against uh, uh, black people and... I guess, misogynistic against a woman. That's what this all uh, boils down to. But a couple of other things that Mara Gay said are important because she's a fish who doesn't realize she's in water. I mean, first of all, the you know bringing people from around the world, the diversity. I mean, unless they're Asian, of course. Right? Right, right Mara? Yeah. Uh, anyway, I, are you familiar with the recently decided Harvard admissions case, Mara Gay? New York Times editorial board member, but I digress. I don't expect any sort of rigor for her. She just told you what she is. She's a scientific socialist, which means she's a materialist, which means that she is, in the modern context, a full identitarian mouthpiece. That's all she is. That's all she cares to be. She's interested in a substantive conversation. None of these people are. They're not interested in living substantive lives. Why would they be interested in substantive conversations with people who are beneath them, people who are not innocent as they are innocent? They, because the people who uh, would challenge them are racists and misogynists and all and suffer from all kinds of phobias and so on and so forth. These are bad people. And what we do the, in control of these status institutions media, public health agencies, universities, as Claudine Gay wrote in her New York Times piece, is we focus on protecting our ill-gotten gains at all costs. That's what this is all about. I said this the other day. This is not about uplifting, diversity, bringing people together, uniting. This is about we want status, prestige, and material well-being at someone else's expense. Uh, where we make a claim for those things based on our identity. And uh, anyone who would challenge that claim is some sort of uh, troglodyte and interloper and uh, uh, anachronism, vestige of white supremacist patriarchy. That's what you're going to get. So when people say, you know, well, oh, like common ground, let's find common ground. Let's meet in the middle. Let's agree to disagree. Let's let's focus on the things we agree because we agree about so many more things than we disagree. No, we don't. No, we don't. We have a fundamental foundational disagreement with the Mara Gays and the Claudine Gays and all the other apologists surrounding them, including 700 members of the Harvard faculty and all those uh, student pro-Hamas student groups and so on and so forth. It is not reconcilable. It has to be one model for organizing a free society or another. You cannot be a little bit identitarian. And I, I wish people would would really understand this. We have a little bit of a disagreement. Oh, Mara Gay's a liberal. She's left, and, and I'm, I'm conservative. But, you know, we still believe in America. 
they, they do not believe. They do not believe these identitarians of all stripes. They do not believe in the founding principles of this country. They don't. They do not. And so that is a chasm that cannot be traversed. And it needs to be put to the American people this year in particular, since it's an election year. And by the way, since Vivek Ramaswamy was invoked as a racist, um, I, he deserves some time on the floor to respond. And thankfully, a identitarian Washington Post reporter, Amazon Post reporter, mm-hmm. part of one of those institutions, all aligned, challenged him after an event in Scott County, Iowa, so Davenport area. You, you haven't condemned white supremacy. I haven't heard you condemn white supremacy. You condemn Claudine Gay. Why haven't you condemned white supremacy? You didn't say that you condemn white supremacy. I'm not, I'm not going to recite some catechism for you. I'm against vicious racial discrimination in this country. So I'm not pledging allegiance to your new religion of modern wokeism, which absolutely fits, fits the test. I'm not going to bend the knee to your religion. I'm sorry. I'm not asking you to bend the knee to mine, and I'm not going to bend the knee to yours. But do I condemn vicious racial discrimination? Yes, I do. Am I going to play your silly game of gotcha? No, I'm not. And frankly, this is why people have lost trust. And I know you're going to go print the headline tomorrow. I already know this. We already know how your game works. Vivek Ramaswamy refuses to condemn white supremacy because you asked a stupid question. The reality is I condemn vicious racial discrimination in this country. But the kind of vicious and systematic racial discrimination we see today is discrimination on the basis of race in a very different direction. You want to know what the best way is to end discrimination on the basis of race? Stop discriminating on the basis of race. Do that, and we're going to move this country forward. And I don't care whether you're black or white or brown or anything in between. That's how we're going to unite this country. You people have been responsible for dividing this country to a breaking point, creating a projection of national division. I meet people from the south side of Chicago to meetings like this one of every shade of melanin, multiple from man to woman, doesn't make a difference, who are hungry for reviving unity in this country. And you, with your catechism that you try to get to politicians to whatever fake headline you're going to print on the basis of this conversation tomorrow, that's what's dividing this country for a break, to a breaking point. Shame on you. Look people in the eye and tell them what you've actually failed to tell them for the last five years. Own the accountability for your own failures as the media. That's how we rebuild trust in this country. And until then, I don't have a lot of patience to play the games. Uh, so cut and paste what Ramaswamy said and use it uh, in your circles of influence. Absolutely. 100%. Stuck the landing. Every other uh, cliche you like about somebody who just obliterates somebody on the merits, because that's what Ramaswamy just did to that Amazon Post reporter. And to identitarians everywhere. Wonderful. Uh, Harry in Novi, Michigan. Good morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, very simply put, five words, if I'm not plagiarizing, a cheater is a cheater, <laughs> plain and simple. And um, speaking of those who have cheated Harvard, let's go ahead and make sure that Elizabeth Warren is not receiving a pension since she cheated to get on there. So those were my two points as far as the lovely Harvard University. Thanks oh. for the call, Harry. Appreciate it. Um, our friend Eli Steele. Uh, the documentarian, son of Shelby, had a good piece in Newsweek, too, talking about his upbringing in a diverse household, Mara Gay. Oh, no. 
black, Jewish, he's got Native American ancestry, so on and so forth. I mean, this is the basis of his uh, great documentary, How Jack Became Black, talking about his son, well, profiling his son, really, in his entrance into L.A. public schools. Great documentary. You should watch it. Another tour de force on on identitarianism. And you should, uh, I know we're past uh, the holidays, but um, you want to strike a blow for identitarianism, go buy How Jack Became Black and give it to your identitarian friends, those who've been brainwashed by this nonsense spewed by the Mara gays of the world. He writes in Newsweek, when I first learned of Claudine Gay's fate, I thought back to one of the earliest lessons of my youth. The women and men that visited my parents at our Bay Area home always told me never to use race as an excuse. They said the same attitude went for the profound hearing loss that I was born with. These adults had grown up under segregation and suffered grievous human indignities. They would not have been wrong in the eyes of many to blame racism for any unfair obstacles placed in their paths. Yet my black elders knew on an instinctual level that to give in to race and racism was to give immutable characteristics power over individual identity and character. As one of my elders told me, I'm not the N-word they call me. That's all them. They knew that giving in, identifying with the race that the racists saw, would have led them into the trap of endless victimization. And it is to their credit that these doctors, dentists, professors, and filmmakers always insisted on finding the path of success somehow. That's the choice. Mara Gay's America or Eli Steele's? Matt in Mount Greenwood. Hey, good morning, Dan and Amy. Ramaswamy was spot on. Now I was just going to say that we keep on pounding these people with the truth, the truth that hopefully set us free because the wolf has just stopped. We'll have to stop until there's something else for them to, to latch on to. And, you know, thinking about gay or any leftist, you know, an NFL football player is held to a higher standard these days than these people. When you think about it. As yeah, because it's performance-based, right. Amen. Amen, right? And, and you know, I, I wish Martin Luther King was alive today, and I never really paid too much attention to it until probably the last 10 years. But whatever happened to the great melting pot, judging people by the character of their person as opposed to the color of their skin, it's so sad. And I guess the good thing about what's going on now is that we're able to share this with our kids, you know, who are – you know, for 20 and younger, which is a great thing, because they they understand it. They, they've gone to, you know, what's still at a, a very diverse uh, Southside Catholic High School, and uh, it, 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 it bodes well because they have friends and they laugh. All these kids, these white kids, black kids, Hispanic kids, they laugh at all this BS. They truly do, so it gives me faith in the future. Well, that's, that's good. That's a whole... Thanks for the comment. That's a hopeful note, because you know, the thing that Mara Gay said that uh, is really telling, the, the fish that doesn't know she's in water comment i made you know these we, anybody who's gone to a public university or a private university you we these values identitarianism these values are important to us exactly that's what those institutions have been be, become uh totalitarian re-education camps that transmit these values identitarianism to generation after generation and um that needs to come to an end this is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. 
Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We had uh, Wisconsin Congressman Brian Stile on the show at the end of the program yesterday. And uh, he was part of the delegation, some five dozen strong that went down to Eagle Pass, Texas with House Speaker Mike Johnson to uh, talk to Border Patrol, talk to residents, uh, see for themselves what's happening at the border and what uh, Border Patrol is up against. And here's what Speaker Johnson had to say after their visit. We, We represent over half the U.S. states because every state in America is now a border state. And we've seen that on vivid display today. Today we were able to meet with local residents, with sheriffs, with the Texas DPS. We also toured the CBP processing facility here in Eagle Pass, and it's been an eye-opener. One thing is absolutely clear. America is at a breaking point with record levels of illegal immigration. And today we got a first-hand look at the damage and the chaos the border catastrophe is causing in all of our communities. The situation here and across the country is truly unconscionable. We would describe it as both heartbreaking and infuriating. Our communities are overrun. We have local resources that are being strapped. We have lethal drugs that are pouring into our country at record levels. And it's in less than three years that President Biden took office that this has happened. That we have over seven million illegal encounters at the border, nearly two million known gotaways, and that doesn't count the many that are undetected at 312 suspects on the terrorist watch list that have been apprehended. We have no idea how many terrorists have come into the country and set up terrorism cells across the nation. Last month alone, we saw the most illegal crossings in recorded history. It is an unmitigated disaster, a catastrophe. And what's more tragic is that it's a disaster of the president's own design. So what should House Republicans do? 312-642-5600, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro, text line, because we put this to Brian Stile. Right. I know the, you know, the the desire for Mayorkas to be impeached, and of course he should be removed. He's a buffoon. Well, he's and a he has liar. Been, he, was, he was in the Obama administration. He continues to be, and we'll hear from him in just a second, his uh, uh, clown show performance on Morning Joe yesterday. Mm-hmm. But um, but is that enough? 
well, impeaching Mayorkas, or are you willing to support a House Speaker and a House Republican caucus that would do what former ICE Director Tom Homan has suggested, and I've sort of adopted as my position, too, because I think it's persuasive. Everything stops. Everything stops. House Republicans have the purse strings. They will fund nothing. We will not spend another dime. You can uh, wail about, quote-unquote, government shutdowns and aid to this and aid to that, and the sanctuary cities need this and Ukraine needs that and so on and so forth uh, as much as you want until and unless there are policy changes, these specific policy changes, much of which is embodied in House Resolution 2 that we discussed with Style yesterday, which is basically just going back to Trump-era policies. Until you do those policy changes to establish a foundation for a larger discussion about immigration policy, everything stops. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. And I want to tell you, the irony, when Mr. Uh, Speaker Johnson was speaking, there was a family of five walking illegally. I, they had the kid on their shoulders, they were going through the Rio Grande, and just like, they, they kind of glanced over, and then kept walking into our country. Like, oh my God. Well, I mean, right. <laughs> well, you got to go. You got to go. I don't know what's going on over here, but we're we're crossing now. Well, so you, you, I mean, when you when you're encountering uh, twelve, fifteen thousand people on a daily basis, the flow is going to be continuous. And it is I mean, everyone's you, problem. I mean, I don't know if you heard last yesterday in Palatine, a bus from Texas came and dropped up, dropped off about forty people at the metro station in yeah. downtown Palatine, and police were called. They wouldn't let them off the bus. And then they gave the bus driver directions to the drop-off location in Chicago and followed the bus out of town to make sure that he got onto 53 to take 90 in. Yeah, well, that's so So what? Oh I mean, God. what's so what's so uh, exciting about that? that that's, just, this is happening. Just, like, uh, are people unwilling to accept reality? This is happening. It's happening everywhere. Uh, wouldn't let them the suburbs the of Chicago and the suburbs of New York, uh, sanctuary cities and states, uh, both. Uh. So, yeah, this is what it is. Um, I mean, uh, there were 92 migrants that arrived by train to Wheaton yesterday as well. I mean, I, I'm getting the uh, EMRS reports on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. You can tell you number of migrants, 46, train number 60, migrant arrival at station, 1,700 hours, uh, ETA, and then they pushed them on to Chicago an hour and 45 minutes later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so on and so forth. Right. I mean, it's and a everywhere. total of 3,000 in DuPage County. The month of December, yeah, we get the updates. Yeah, and 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 then so after Johnson has uh, that press conference at the border, uh-huh. then he goes on to CNN, and here's Jake Tapper oh boy. towing the party line, towing the CNN slash party line. They're indistinguishable. Oh, the, let's talk about the fourteen billion dollars uh, in aid and the and this you know global aid package the Biden administration wants to do. Will give you X for the border, and then you give us X for Ukraine, and we'll do X in Israel and X for Taiwan, and we'll do this whole uh, spendathon to make sure all the buckets are somewhat filled and we can all declare victory about how responsible we are. So the $14 billion, um, there are, you're right, 1,600 asylum officers that would be part of that to speed up processing of asylum claims. That's what you're talking about. Uh, but there also would be 1,300 more 
Border Patrol agents to work alongside the, the 20,200, uh, and also funding to hire 1,000 Custom and Border Prote Protection F officers with a focus on counter fentanyl. So it's not all, in fact, most of it is not related to uh, 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 processing asylum seekers. A, a lot of it has to do with what you're talking about. Jake, the president should come to the border. It, what, a, what an idea that would be. He should talk to the Border Patrol agents who are down here. I think he went last year, just FYI. Yeah, well, he went for a photo op. He should come and spend a couple of days like we have to be with the people here on the ground who are fighting this war on the border. That's effectively what it is. We have so many people. Jake, seven million people have come into the country since Biden uh, walked into the Oval Office. And that's a, a low estimate. Most people believe it may be twice that high. We have it, nearly two million gotaways that we know about, not to mention those who evaded capture. Over 300 uh, known terrorists apprehended at the border trying to come in. We don't know how many evaded uh, capture and, and uh, detection. They're in the country, potentially setting up terrorist cells everywhere. Fentanyl is the number one cause of death for Americans age 18 to 49, flowing over the border like an open sewer. Human traffic is the number one business of the cartels here. Estimated, we were told today, Jake, one of the local sheriffs here, said that they believe that the cartels are making $32 million a week on trafficking human beings into the U.S. That's over $1.5 billion a year. Transnational criminal organizations. And the Biden administration seems to care nothing about it. Remember, they could... They could issue executive orders and fix this overnight. You could uh, restate, reinstate the Remain in Mexico policy. You could stop the catch and release policy that the Biden administration right. assists upon. You could do some some very important things, but they refuse to do it. And uh, Tappers, you know, uh, we'll, we'll look here. It's got, uh, you know, all the resources for more officers and so on and so forth. Yeah, Jake, you're not listening. You don't get it. And Mike Johnson got to it at the end there. It's policy changes. It is not a personnel matter. It is policy changes. You have to stop the flow. What you're saying is more person and what the administration is saying is is more personnel and do nothing about the flow. You have to send a message that, no, you're not coming in. No, we are stopping the flow. You're not going to be able to come to this country um, awaiting uh, your asylum application adjudication and so forth. And to the to that point, when Mayorkas was on Morning Joe and he was asked the question, uh, if asylum seekers should have sort of a if we should go back to a safe third country protocol for asylum seekers. Rather than allowing them uh, into this country. Here's what he said. But fundamentally, fundamentally, Congress must fix the broken immigration system. In that case, backlog is a powerful example of why that is so. And what he said is, I'm not answering the question, which right. is to say we're, we're, we're not interested in changing the policy. So that, that's what it comes down to is the policy change. And the, what you heard from Johnson and what you heard from Mayorkas couldn't be more clear. So then the question is, what is Johnson and the House Republican Caucus going to do about it? Ron Southside, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Again, that's the question. And, and, and no, you do not need... Uh, President Biden. What, what is that goof going to do going there? Um, Johnson and Republicans control the spending. Shut it down. And to the uh, president of Mexico, no, there is no foreign aid to, to Latin America. Period. It's, it's, it's in their control now, Dan. Shut this down. Stop. The, the country is being invaded. By illegals, these people have broken the law. They they are considered 
criminals. What is, how much more clear can this be? But the worst thing to have is have um, Joe Biden. He sent, I think Jesse Jackson, I mean, yeah, uh, not Jesse, Jonathan went down. You sent some of them Democrats down there. They came back with nothing. Okay, so the answer is is simply shut it down. And and we need to put the pressure on Johnson to make that call. They control it. If not, if not don't spend money on anything else. Have a good day. Thanks, Ron. Yeah, well, Johnson didn't go down our mayor because, remember, he has a black wife and they have soccer games. I, I <laughs> understand. He's got, he's, yeah, he's, got, he's busy. He's, he's a busy. father trying to raise... Three black children and a black wife, or something. Yeah. What's so goofy? Grant and Rockford. Good morning, you guys. Hey, shut it down. These people can't be reasoned with. I mean, they arrest an illegal who's been uh, uh, released with a machete at the Capitol. I mean, they, they don't care. So shut it down. Fight fire with fire. They want to be belligerent. So can we do that? Let's just get ready for four more years of Trump and stop calling migrants. They're invaders, just like the last guy I said. Thanks for the call, Grant. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't. Well, I'll restate the position I've taken on that: is where you focus on the migrants and um, like they're the problem, you're moving attention away from the policymakers, and they're the problem. And my focus is 100% on the policymakers, right. where it should be, um, because it's all about their accountability, the judgment calls they're making, the power they have, and will they exercise it? And here we have another example: the left will usurp power it does not have when the right does not exercise the power it has. And the House Republicans have the power, the power of the purse. And by the way, how absurd is this? I mean, you know, as if you needed to make the case of Mayorkas's, uh, idiot. for Mayorkas's impeachment. <laughs> listen blamed, to the, I know. Well, listen to this response to the question about Mexico. Can you uh, impose on... AMLO, the president of Mexico, Manuel Lopez Obrador, can you impose on him to do more? And listen to what Mayorkas says. I don't even know what he's talking about. But we spoke with Mexico last week about what we think they can do to assist us in enforcing uh, their borders so that we do not see the level of migration, irregular migration at our border. And in fact, we've started to see the results of their increased cooperation and our increased collaboration on the enforcement measures. You've started to see the results. December had the most illegals crossing into this country ever. Ever in the history of Border Patrol (laughs) Agency. 300,000 plus in one month. This is this is like the suspension of disbelief that's required to take people like Mayorkas seriously. And don't forget, he's not just some uh, flunky that was pulled out of left field to be the Homeland Security Secretary. This is a former U.S. attorney. That's embarrassing. That's embarrassing for our country and the Biden administration. And then they even asked him, like, why is there such a high number of, you know, illegals coming in? And he blamed it on climate change. That, I mean, this is it's a global problem. So we are seeing the greatest number of displaced people, not only at our southern border, not only in the Western Hemisphere, but across the globe. You know, I am involved in bilateral and multilateral meetings with my counterparts from foreign countries in Europe, uh, in Asia, in the Indo-Pacific, all over the world. 
and migration, the challenge of displaced people, is a subject that comes up in every single conversation. We have the effects of climate change, <laughs> poverty, increasing level of authoritarianism, the very many challenges that are at the root cause of the displacement of people around the world. We can't do anything because it's a global problem and we need to get to the root causes before we do anything. Does that sound familiar? That's the same response you get from big city mayors like BLM Brandon about violent crime. It's a national problem. We need to get to root causes. That's the same response you get from the heads of teachers unions like Stacey Davis Gates in Chicago. Oh, the reading, writing, sexual abuse, whatever. That's a national problem in big urban school systems, and we can't do anything until we address root causes of poverty and, and food insecurity and home insecurity and so on. And Nothing can be addressed. Th this, is, this is like the cut-and-paste answer. I hope people see the, the parallels here. Cut-and-paste answer to every uh, what they say are intractable problems that are not intractable problems. It's we can't do anything until we do everything for everyone. So we are not responsible. These are every sort, everything that happens under our leadership are sort of natural disasters combined with the um, remnants of, you know, the white supremacist patriarchy. And until we get to root causes on anything and everything, we can do nothing. That's the pat answer. They don't care about it. They don't care about our country. They don't care about your safety. They don't care about the border. Tony in Riverside. Good morning, Dan and Amy. This is like Chinese torture, okay? So we need to start doing something different, I guess. And I think that one thing might be helpful that make us all feel empowered a little bit to do something is if it, your show and Sean's show gives out the speaker's phone number, we've got to swarm his inbox with calls. Well, I, mean, I would we say, just yeah, can't yeah, not do anything. Rep. Yeah, the, 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 the D.C. switchboard in Speaker Johnson's office, that's good. But also, um, you have a congressional delegation. Yep. And um, start with the three Republicans that exist, even though they're, you know, central and southern Illinois, because, of course, Chicago land is lost. Uh, so Mary Miller, yeah, Darren LaHood, and Mike Bost, those three Republicans, Darren LaHood, Mike, Mary Miller, Mike Bost, you, you know, everybody's got Google, look, look up their well, office phone numbers. the numbers, because I look them up and I call and I leave messages, but yeah, a lot exactly. of people won't do that. Thanks for the call, Tony. Bost, Miller, LaHood, three Republicans, and, you know, there are some suburban Congress humans that maybe if... If, if some parts of Chicagoland ever regained anything resembling sanity and sense, uh, they would be ousted, like Sean Caston comes to mind. So call Caston too. Why not? Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, now we have a very special offering here on this topic. I, I was uh, emailed this last night, and I thought the uh, lyrics were so good. And you know how we love parody songs here. Love them. I uh, thought we'd uh, give uh, another listener an opportunity to become a contributor to the show because uh, we have so many great listeners, talented listeners that make the show so much better than it would otherwise be. And one of them is Michael from the South Side, who joins us now. Michael, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Morning, Dan. Morning, Amy. Thank you both for taking my call. All right. Now, I've got the instrumental music bed. Oh, this could be a disaster. For, for your lyrics. Now, you tell me. 
when you are ready to and you know i don't know what kind of pipes you have if you feel more comfortable talk singing i know this is your debut performance your maiden voyage you tell me when you're ready to go i'll cue up the music and turn it over to you sure ready i can uh i'll probably i'll probably half talk half sing yeah can you feel it ready i can too come on feel it Come on, feel it. Come on, feel it. Come on, feel it. Uno, dos, tres. Now I come to the tell-all. Here comes the lyrics. It's such a good migration. It's such a sweet invasion. It's such a good migration. It's such a sweet invasion. Yo, it's about my crime. Let's send forth my rhythm and my rhyme. I'm getting mine, so up yours. I want to see illegals on my shores. On the real tip is how I'm saying this. Strictly plain talk home, I ain't singing this. Selling this to the entire nation. North, south, east, west, feel the migration. Come on, come on. Feel it, feel it. Feel the migrations. It's such a good migration. It's such a sweet invasion. It's such a good migration. It's such a sweet invasion. Migration. The border is a myth. Many want to know why do this. Sleepy Joe, and I'm here to school you. Crimes will groove you, and I'm here to make red blue. Then we can party on the lefty side and pop liberal vibes, so stay along for the ride. Making you feel La Migrisha, La Migra is my avocation. So feel the migration. Come on, come on. Feel it, feel it. Feel the migration. All right, Michael. All right, all right, Michael. I'm gonna, I'm going to Simon Cowell you. I think we've, I think we got it. Now, I would say that I haven't heard such a, um, yeah. Well, there you go, the audience. Um, I would say um, your uh, your tone is the equivalent of Amy Jacobson. No. So I would say, I would say that. I mean, you're, you're, you're definitely in the ballpark. Uh, um, but you I know. think you're a little late, a little off. But yeah, it, not, I like the effort, and I really not, appreciate that you called not, in. Not quite on time there, right, but I mean, again, this is his, you know, his first. first I'm gonna, time. I'm, I'm gonna say yes. We pass him on to the next round, just okay. for for the lyrics, <laughs> for the original lyrics alone. I'm gonna say yes. All right, Michael, you've got the ticket to the next round. We'll Woo-hoo! look forward to uh, more musical stylings from yeah. Michael on the South Side. Thanks so much, Michael. We'll see you in Berwyn. Oh, All right, thank you, Dan and Amy. You're welcome. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM 560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. A big weekend uh, kicks off. Tomorrow, Seattle, Washington, the site of FatCon 2024. 
FatCon 2024, uh, Seattle, Washington, and um, it's a full program. Uh, but I'll uh, turn it over to, to uh, Jay Bay. We've uh, brought you Jay Bay before. She is a uh, a fat influencer, okay, a fat uh, civil rights activist. She is the one who came up with the fat persons, fat humans. Uh, uh, passenger Bill of Rights for airplanes. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's my girl, man. That's my home girl. Uh, mm-hmm. she, yeah, and she uh, is uh, previewing FatCon 2024 in this clip and encouraging you to get your tickets because, you know, they're getting gobbled up. I'm going to FatCon in Seattle, Washington, January 5th through 7th, and I want to see you there. FatCon is a three-day fat liberation celebration, y'all. Liberation. We will be celebrating fat liberation, body acceptance, and the power of being in fat community. With over 60 hours of programming spanning from policy, legislation, healthcare, community, and visual arts, plus a ton more, this is sure to be something you don't want to miss. The vibes are going to be immaculate. With a fat brunch, a fat fashion show, and a fat vendor marketplace, there is so much to do. Plus, there's some really cool experiences you can sign up for, like some fat liberation photo shoots and some incredible shopping experiences with two big blondes. Being in fat community with other fat people who just accept you for who you are and get it is such a great experience, and I want every single person watching this to be able to have that experience with us. Ticket sales for the FatCon are going to be ending very soon. You can go to the link in my bio and use code JBAE to save 25% on your tickets. I hope to see each and every one of you at the FatCon in Seattle, Washington, January 5th through Now, I know uh, what you're thinking. Mm. 60 hours of programming, that's a lot. There will be snack breaks. Oh, that's so rude. Uh, so uh, being in community with fat people and when you know, when fat people sit around in community, they sit around the community. Text message. <clears throat> Is this a setup by a Seattle cardiology practice? No, I think it's the uh, Seattle Restaurant Association. Uh, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. Um, in addition to Governor Pritzker, maybe a special guest, I don't oh, know. It would be awesome if he it showed up. Should be. MK I mean, he, can't because MK, I heard, is on Ozempic and is getting really thin. So I mean, uh, Jelly Belly has got to be a, a hero to these people. Maybe make it uh, bipartisan. Get Chris Christie and JB together on the stage. You're going to have to reinforce that stage. But nonetheless, that'd be a nice moment. Um, there are some, I mean, just to give a little bit more detail on that 60 hours of programming that Jay Bay sort of outlined, uh, you know, top line for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a uh, breakout session, Feeling Fat, Feeling Our Fat. We yeah. will deeply feel into our fat bodies mm-hmm. through embodiment exploration. Hey, where'd my hand go? And creative movement. We will practice deepening into the sensations in our bodies and how to perceive and honor the that somatic wisdom. I will uh, guide you into exploring how your body moves, if it does, fully embracing your fat. We're going to get curious about jiggles, folds, jiggles. and the momentum oh. and gravity of fat bodies. Oh, no. Jiggles and folds. <laughs> I used jiggles. to They came on right after the Bozo show. When I was growing up, <laughs> jiggles and folds. Uh, yeah, Three. I mean, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be accused of being a fattest. I'm just no, providing I'm the, the information. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line. <clears throat> Excuse me, you can text us at six four six three six and type in da then a quick comment. And I, I just, I mean, 
Somebody texted, BatCon's 10-year reunion will probably have a low turnout. Um, we're celebrating diabetes and early death. I mean, no, 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 no. What do you mean? No, no, no. Well, let me, let me, let me just provide a little bit about COVID. A little bit more here. Um, do you? Are you curious about? Uh, you know, understanding the jiggles and the folds, the gravity of fat of fat bodies. If you're a fat body, mm-hmm. um, and remember, we're we're like it's like the. The dehumanization of people. This is, you know, black bodies. Now we're talking about fat bodies. It's really interesting how, I mean, on a serious note, how they use the same nomenclature of the identitarians because this is part of the identitarian movement. This this yeah, is the absurdities is. and the grotesqueness that the identitarian politics, the our identitarian culture leads one to. But anyway, um, are you wondering if feeling our fat is a breakout session for you? I'm glad you asked. This class could be for you. If you want to unpack the ways our fat bodies are holding messages of fat phobia and find a new way to relate to your physical being, you intellectually understand that fat liberation, but you want to deepen your embodied and felt experience of it. You saw weighted bodies and felt compelled to explore your own body in this way. Is there some such thing as an unweighted? Uh, You want to be more connected to your body exactly as it is, including your fat not despite it. You want to be able to wipe yourself. No, I added that. Uh, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro, text line. You want to rediscover where your PP went, maybe. Or be able to tie your shoes. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Be able to stand without uh, cracking a femur. But it's a whole new identity. I mean, it's because on Southwest now, that people or people who identify online as obese will now get a free seat when flying on Southwest Airlines. Absolutely. That is wrong. So I'm going to identify as tall person. And tall people, we need more leg room. Hence, I would like two seats, too. Yeah, fighting identitarianism with identitarianism. Yes. No, I don't think so. Um, I got some other uh, breakout sessions. Oh, yes, please. Go through them? Yeah. I mean, if you're on the fence as to whether or not. Uh, you uh, go to FatCon. FatCon. Fat in the wild, adventures in the outdoors. <laughs> the mountains, trees, and animals do not care what you look like or what you can do. I want you in my belly. But it, that isn't always Get true about belly. the people in the outdoors. I once thought that the world of outdoor adventuring was reserved for the young, the thin, the super fit, and let's face it, the men. Growing up, I didn't see my body represented in the outdoor media that I consumed, and that made me believe that I didn't belong there. Now I'm here and very much fat and outdoorsy. Andrea DeMeo is the one leading this session, so she's talking in first person. If being a hiker, rock climber, biker, avalanche, camper, or any of those outdoor ventures sounds exciting, but you don't think you can you belong there because you're in a bigger body, let me show you that isn't true. We all deserve to be fat in the wild and in the wild if that's where we want to be. Are you really sending me this to this event? Yeah, that you're going to be, be our on the ground on the ground reporter. Going to be trying to you know switch out the uh, cheeseburgers for salads, I suppose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a, well, another. I can volunteer at the event. I'm online right now. 
Um, here's another one for you. Um, now, this doesn't have any particular description, uh-huh. but it, it um, I would say it conjures imagery, so it doesn't need a description. The uh, breakout session is led by someone who goes by the handle Viking. Okay, there, there, are, there are trigger, war- trigger warnings. And the session is entitled Rope Bondage 101. The trigger warning, sexual content, mention of specific sizes and weights. Well, sure. I mean, you've got to have a, you know, pulley system that can support. Uh, Tony on the south side, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy, my little lamb. So, you know, I I don't know if you guys, Amy, I'm going to be out there myself. I got a booth. Um, I got a new product that I wanted. I didn't know where to market it. Now I know. I designed a scale. That when somebody stands on it and they're too fat, it says to be continued. (laughs) (laughs) Good eye. Thanks, Tony. Uh, Mm. Chris Christie should speak at that event. Mm -hmm. Uh Outdoorsy. Outdoorsy. We're going to have pickleball. Oh, oh boy, please. Where are the pickles? Uh, Chris in Lake Zurich. Yeah, I tried to go to one of these uh, fat con events one time. So I was driving up, and there was a fat guy in the middle of the road. I was trying to get in. I said, hey, get out of the way. He goes, go around. I said, I don't think I got enough gas. I uh... Oh, you guys are so bad. Uh, Jeff and Elgin. <laughs> oh, Jeff, I'm coughing up a lung there. All right, Jeff, go ahead. Hey, anyway, uh, there was a fat con out here in Elgin, Probably mm-hmm. ten years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, I can't uh, unbelievable. I couldn't believe how large these people were. And I've seen uh, double, triple wide wheelchairs. They had to take all the the the, the uh, bar stools out because they had uh, arms on them. They had to have just stools with no arms. And uh, anyway, then they had a. Uh, 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 seminars on how to clean your fat folds. Yeah, and, sure. The jiggles. And, uh, and well, it is a thing. I mean, you do have to. It, it, yeah. You have to. Yeah. Well, whatever. We learned anyway. this all on Jerry Springer's show when he used to do those rescues. In fact, thanks for the call, Jeff. Maybe, oh, right. maybe that could be a thing. It's like who can you get? You get to learn how to operate a crane to lift uh, fat people that are locked up, like in a second floor, and they can't get out. You know, you you have to knock out the window, and you have to right. or take the roof off. Yeah. Them out. Yeah. Oh my God. How does it get to that though? I, I, well, let's just keep having fun with this segment. I don't get. Yeah, it. I mean, you know, we're look. Everybody has gets made fun of. Well, but so, people always ask know, me why on. I'm a fattest. Well, because I I take time every day to work out. I rarely take one day off. Um, but also during COVID, like, they're the reasons why I have processed it this way. Why my kids were out of school for almost two years and why they no, weren't able to play sports. No, no, 79% of the people who were hospitalized or died from COVID so, were obese or morbidly obese. And that this, was always left out of the uh, equation. Uh, excuse me. What? So it's just, you know, like, calm down. Oh. Because, you, you, I Don't mean. Don't tell a woman to calm down. That, that's, 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 that's a serious allegation because one of the things you're saying, yeah, I understand comorbidities and you're more likely to COVID and more likely to get serious. We all know this. But that doesn't mean that every a person who is uh, obese supported the policy choices that politicians made. Okay. So don't blame them if they 
we're not on board with lockdowns. This isn't about your body weight or your race or your gender. It's did you support terrible public policy? I don't care what your weight is. So, no, they're not responsible for uh, Jelly Belly shutting down the state and the schools or Lightfoot doing the same locally. They're not responsible for that. Matt in Oakland. Hey, good morning. Happy New Year. Um, I have an oldie but a goodie. Out in the western suburbs last summer, driving down North Avenue, and uh, beautiful Rolls Royce pulls up next to me at the red light. Window rolls down, and the gentleman says, Sir, can you please give me directions to 355? <laughs> Look back, said Governor. Fruits, vegetables, and extra away. Oh, you cut out for the punchline. What's oh, the punchline? Yeah. I said, Governor Pritzker, it's fruits, vegetables, and hard work. There you away. go. Thanks for the call, Matt. All right. And there's your way to 355. Uh, Richard, Blue Island. Hey, Dan and Amy. Got a song for Richard oh. cutting out on us. Richard, Richard, Richard. Yeah, we got to we'll try hear Richard the song. again. Richard, call back. Call back on a line that's not cracking up. Uh, Larry and Bartlett. Hey, good morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, Dan, I think you have to change your metaphor for this topic. Uh, instead of sitting on the fence, it's more like sitting on a big brick wall. Thanks for the call, Larry. Chuck and Delavan. Hey, I don't know. You guys don't pay attention in news flashes, but the the Colorado Supreme Court just removed Bill Clinton's name from the Epstein list. Hey, uh, <laughs> I it before. Like, uh, and you never in caveman paintings. I don't know if you ever seen him draw a salad. There's never been a salad. It's always been a big mastodon. And once again, I'm going to tell you once. I'm going to tell you it again. Uh, you're not a lady unless you're 180. There you go. Very good, Chuck. Which is the new median weight for women post COVID. Uh, Richard Blue Island, I'll give you one more chance. Okay, here comes the song. Here it goes. Fat people got no reason. No. Fat people got no reason. Fat people got no reason to live. They got big fat bellies and big fat thighs and walk around telling great big lies. Don't want no fat people. Don't want no fat people. Don't want no Okay, fat Randy Newman here. impersonator. Yeah, all right. Uh, You're not yeah. moving on. No, I don't think so. Sorry. George in Naperville. Dan, will Bertha Butt, one of the Butt sisters, be in attendance? All right. It's sort of devolving. I thought we were having fun, and now it's sort of devolving into tepid. Oh third grade humor at least keep it at the fifth grade level well people are texting in uh dan and amy i can't wait for the swimsuit competition do you think they'll have one at FatCon? um i believe they do have i mean i don't know if that's part of the outdoorsies but i did see well they said oh no a uh, jay bay said fashion show oh yeah so it's fashion show right? yeah so so not just maybe like lingerie it'll be like uh, you know victoria's secret but yeah. um mm-hmm. yeah but different Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Your show keeps me alive during the week. There's nobody I'd rather listen to between 5 and 9 in the morning than you guys. On AM 560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson. On AM 560, The Answer.
top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Yeah, crime is down in Chicago. Uh, everything's going in the right direction. We just need to uh, stay the course. Things are working out well. That's what we're led to believe from the pronouncements of uh, BLM Brandon and Governor Spaulding. Here are the actual numbers. Uh, Wirepoints.org had it. According to uh, police CompStat reports, homicides in 2022, 709. Homicides in 2023, 617. Uh, HeyJackass.com had it at 644. I sort of trust HeyJackass more. But regardless, we'll go with the CompStat numbers. That's fine. So down 13%. Oh, my gosh, down 13%. Brandon Johnson's policies, uh, well, the continuation, because BLM Brandon is a continuation of Lightfoot. Uh, the con- the Lightfoot to Brandon Johnson, it's it's working. This is great. We should be celebrating, Dan. Uh, and in reality, um, Chicago ha- still led the nation in murders in the aggregate number. It was second among cities with more than 1.5 million in population on a per capita basis behind Philadelphia. It uh, almost had more murders than New York and L.A. combined, despite the fact that Ill, that uh, that's 12 million in population compared to 12 million plus compared to Chicago's 2.66. So, I mean, it's almost six times the population, New York and L.A., and we had just a few less murders than New York and L.A. combined. But it's a national problem. It's everybody's problem. It's nobody's responsibility. That's what we're supposed to believe. And also, of course, we're only supposed to look at uh, crime categories that go down. We're supposed to ignore carjackings, assaults, rapes, um, and other metrics that are, of course, traumatic for the victim that speak to a lawlessness in Chicago and Cook County and increasingly Chicago land under the Pritzker Purge Law. We're supposed to ignore all that. Just focus on what we say you're to focus on. Hmm. Well, I mean, I understand because Jelly Belly and BLM Brandon know their audience. They know how Chicagoans love their beautiful lies. So they'll keep telling them. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Teal Hardiman. He's the executive director for Violence Interrupters, NFP. And he has a book out entitled Interrupting Gun Violence, the Public Health Approach. Teal, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. It's an honor to be on the show with you and uh, Amy, uh, Dan. So, um, so tell us uh, what you think about uh, the data that's come out and the characterization of that data from Chicago and Illinois political leaders. Well, basically, I'm, I'm really uh, happy to see that you put them numbers out there because Chicago continues to struggle with this gun violence issue because the reality is that Chicago has more homicides than any other city across the United States every year. Even though they may say that homicides are down like 13% or whatever the case may be compared to last year. And like you said also, a lot of times people in, in, uh, in, you know, in the administration or people in power per se in, uh, in Chicago, they may talk about when homicides may be down, but nobody, nobody wants to really talk about how car- carjackings are up, um, robberies are up, auto theft is up right now. And then when you talk about the numbers, the, the numbers do not mean anything to the victims of gun violence. It's, it's good to just mention numbers, but the reality is that uh, criminal justice reform has backfired on the victims of crime here in Chicago. 
a lot of times the young guys do not even fear the police right now based on some of the policies that, that are out there, like the, the, no, the no chase policy. Police cannot chase on foot or in their cars. They have to be use their discretion. But the reality is that people are not in fear of the police right now. People are being robbed, sitting down in restaurants with their families. People are being robbed all across the city of Chicago. And a lot of the guys that are committing these crimes, uh, they're jumping out of cars, four or five uh, people together with masks on. You know, I had a press conference a couple of years back saying we need to really uh, make it against the law to wear full-face ski masks. And nobody really picked up on it, but a few other states, a few other states have jumped on it, like San, a few other cities, like San, San Francisco, Philadelphia, and even in some parts of Baltimore, you cannot wear full-face ski masks now because that's a real serious issue, if you ask me. It's like somebody jumping out of a car and you're in the middle of a horror movie or something like that. So, yeah, I, I, the numbers are really good that you put out there. The reality, put it like that, the reality of what's really going on in Chicago. And so... Um, uh... The approach that you've heard from uh, BLM Brandon when he rolled out his new public safety plan a few weeks back before the end of the year, and it was, uh, you know, funding for this and funding for that, including uh, so-called violence interrupter organizations. And and it's just a matter of uh, root causes, and and it's a problem of disinvestment on the west and south sides, basically the same rap that we've heard from uh, the last several mayors uh, and nothing's changed. As you say, that's 12 years in a row that Chicago has led the nation in murders in, in, in aggregate. Yes. The reality, I just uh, finished my book. It's, it's titled Interrupting Gun Violence, The Public Health Approach, and people can download it, you know, like, you know, purchase a copy of the book on Amazon. But the reality is this here. The reason I'm talking about the public health, public health approach, I also cover the crime control model and different theories about reducing gun violence. You know, in New York, you had George Kellens had the broken window theory many, right. many decades, a few decades ago, and it proved to uh, produce a few results. Then they have a man mandatory minimum when it comes down to people being caught with a gun in New York uh, State. So the reality in Chicago, and the reason I'm pushing the public health approach is because we look at it like violence spreads as an infectious disease. I'm not the type of guy that's going to overlook the fact that law enforcement needs to kick in in a stronger way as well. Because when you don't have fear of the police, that means people can do whatever they feel they want to do anytime, anywhere, and to anybody. So the public health approach is all about addressing that as a public health well, issue well, and just, violent crime. Is, what yeah. Just, just sorry to interrupt, but just on that, that, that police, I mean, that's not what Brandon Johnson is saying. He's not saying we need to make sure people have a healthy, you say fear, I would say healthy respect for police. And they know that if they commit a crime and the police uh, respond, that they're going to be arrested and they're not and the police aren't to be trifled with and so forth. That respect slash fear, healthy fear, healthy respect, however you want to describe it. That's not what Brandon Johnson is saying, is it? No, not right now. And a lot of times people are using violence and interruptors, but I own the patent on violence and interruptors, so they shouldn't really be using it because they're, they're, they're pretty much like, I'm the guy that's the violence and interruptors. And you know, I created it back in 2004, the model, the public health model in 2004, when I used to serve as the director of ceasefire Illinois. And if you go back to 2004, I'm not meaning to go way back there, but the reality, we helped reduce violence, gun violence by 25% back in 04 when I created the violence and interruptors and, and when we pushed the public health approach. And then law enforcement, they began to work the best that they could work as well. But in my book also, I cover violence and interruption stories, how I stopped killings on the front end, how we mediated conflicts and got guys to come to the table and work out their issues. So there's a lot of good information. Then we talk about structural trauma, how hurt people hurt other people. And due to a lot of trauma, people are just kind of messed up 
you know, a certain segment of the population, because I don't want to go into thinking everybody's kind of messed up like that, but about 80% of the gun violence takes place in the African-American community. Now, right. one thing about it is this here. We have to, there, needs, there needs to be a cultural shift in the African-American community because it's not all just about violence prevention or law enforcement. We need to change the culture in the African-American community when it comes down to my people hurting one another. I talk about that a little bit in my book as well because it's okay. It's the norm for people in our community to hurt one another, and that's a small percentage of our population as well. We have over 800,000 African-American people live in Chicago, but gun violence has been a real, real issue because when you look at the news, it's always about gun violence, Some somebody's being shot and killed in the African-American yeah, community. Yeah, but aren't so, the parents culpable for, you know, for any of this, how they raise their kids? The parents, Amy, that's, that's a good question. The parents are definitely uh, responsible. To a degree, let me say this, let me clear it up for you as well. What happens, that, that sounds good in, in, in theory, but in practice, young kids can grow up in a real nice household, but around in the community surrounding them, it may be problematic. So they, they give in the peer pressure uh, a lot of times, and they give in to what's going on around them. So, yeah, the parents, uh, it's definitely important to have a strong foundation because there's old saying, if you have to look beyond your dinner table for a role model, you may always you may find yourself lost already. So that's true, and the parents need to step up a lot more. But it's kind of hard out here because the community dictates a lot of, like, negative behaviors, you know, to a degree in the music. Uh, a lot of people access the guns. It's like it's, the access to guns is like an abundant field. People, you can go out and purchase guns just like you buy a pair of gym shoes. We got to do a, a better job at intercepting the illegal gun traffic as well. Well, I mean, um, you know, the demand uh, uh, finds the supply. So, uh, I mean, in terms of this uh, cultural shift that you're talking about, of course, I agree. So, how does that happen? I mean, certainly the family is a, is a start, but then you talk about sort of the larger environment in certain neighborhoods uh, or certain segments of certain neighborhoods. And and how it's a small percentage, but that small percentage is dominating the larger population, right. it would seem. So, I mean, Beale and Brandon and every mayor before him, their answer has been right. throw money at uh, influential people on the west and south sides and, and pour more money into this uh, uh, transfer payment program and that transfer payment program. doesn't seem to be working, so what else should we do? Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up as well, Dan. <laughs> this is the thing. The reason I'm pushing the cultural shift because I don't care how much money you pour into this particular problem, the money is not going to work uh, altogether. The reality is the way that a cultural shift takes place, remember the anti-smoking campaign where people used to be, right before that, people were smoking all over the place inside businesses, everywhere you go. And due to the fact that secondhand, secondhand smoke could cause cancer, there's been, there was a shift, you know, on the public health level. It was a danger. Smoking public was like a danger to the health of most people. And then, so there was a, a lot of, uh, Money, you know, a lot of resources put into the anti-smoking campaign, and as an end result, people don't smoke in public places anymore. That's the bottom line. So, well, they, well, they, sure. well smoking, smoking was banned in public places. Unfortunately, you right. know, I mean, banning uh, shooting people in public places just doesn't seem to be working because that's banned too. I, the education right. thing, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just not seeing it. And 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 there's definitely mm-hmm. a political uh, overlay to this. I mean, it's it just there is a lot of excuse making that is offered. You know, all this talk, as we were mentioning, about root causes. Uh, until we get to root causes, we can't do anything, is essentially the no, way that— No, we're not going to be able to get we, to the root. Well, well, well right. And so so, so what, do you do, 
What do you I mean, it seems to me it's a short term, a medium term and a long term conversation. So let's just focus on what we can do in the short term to save lives in the short term. I mean, what would be one or two concrete things you would say could be done tomorrow and should be? Yeah, working with the high-risk individuals, number one. Identifying the young guys that are out there robbing people, you know, shooting people. And I know a lot of times people say just lock up and throw the key away. Some of the guys will be locked up. But in the meantime, we have a lot of programs like my Vance and the Brothers. We can go out. Like we mediated 40 conflicts last year on the front end where a guy wanted to shoot and kill somebody, and we stepped in the middle and we stopped it. So I need to get more Vance and the Brothers out on the streets so we can identify them individuals, work with them. Like last year we worked with 150 young men, high-risk young men that had a history of violence, and about 90% of them did pretty good in my program. 10% of them relapsed. But the thing is, that's just that's just a, a laws of average there. We re-enrolled them guys back in the school and some of the young women. We secured employment for some of the individuals as well. And we helped, change the way, helped them change the way they think about responding to confrontation and all that kind of stuff there. So it's a level uh, of resource, but right before I, the resource is about working with yeah. their minds. And I appreciate that proactivity and, uh, you know, and, if, and, and to the extent that um, – what you're doing could be scaled. I mean, I'm sure, of course, if it produces results, then scale it. But but something else, too, system-wide. I mean, we can't have this conversation without talking about the criminal justice system. So what kind of Cook County uh, state's attorney should we have? Uh, What is your view on Pritzker's uh, no-cash-bail law, of course, supported by Brandon Johnson and Kim Fox? Um, I mean, is that that helping things or or not? And, and, And do we need to... Um, do we need to to make sure that people who present a threat to the community and have demonstrated as such are uh, held over pending trial, that they receive sentences commensurate with the damage they've done to other human beings? I mean, wait, g- give me a give me a riff on the criminal justice system as part of this cultural shift in attitude. Well, I've said this time and time again. Criminal justice reform has kind of backfired on the victims of gun violence here in Chicago. Uh, the no cash bills, you have to understand a lot of the liberal people, let me just put it out there, uh, was, are responsible for pushing that narrative of a no cash bill. Now, I understand that if a person is, is really uh, poor, poor, they cannot afford to pay their bond or whatever the cash, whatever the case may be, if you're locked up for like a nonviolent crime. But if you're locked up for armed robbery, you, you get uh, arrested rather for armed robbery or uh, attempted murder, murder, whatever the case may be, you should have to sit there until you uh, until a, a decision is made. If, you know, if you, you're innocent to proven guilty, I got that. But just because you, and then a lot of guys that have, for example, let me say this. There's a story out there in the universe where a guy was locked up uh, for attempted murder. He was released. And when he was released, he went out and killed the person he was attempting to murder. Mm-hmm. So there's data to to back up what I'm talking about. And when you're placing people on electronic, how many stories out there where people have been placed on electronic monitoring and all that kind of stuff like that, and they still go out and they commit more crimes? There was thirty. There was there was thirty last year. Thirty examples so far last year, and and resulting in two dozen deaths and four dozen injuries. And it's every year. CWB Chicago has done a good job of documenting that. To your point, they're preventable deaths. So so. Kim Fox is gone. I mean, the the Tony Preckwinkle's next guy up is Clayton Harris, um, uh, uh, which ostensibly would be more of the same because, of course, uh, Tony, Tony, Tony supports uh, all the stuff that uh, we're talking about is problematic. So, what, I mean, is that is that a a stand that um, the black community can make uh, in response to? More of the same, uh, a different Cook County State's attorney with a different attitude to demonstrate a, a shift in cultural 
uh, viewpoint? I don't believe any of the people, any of the candidates running for state's attorney here in Chicago, Cook County rather, have a real in-depth understanding of what I mean when I talk about a cultural shift because a lot of times their mind is just strictly focused on being punitive or whatever the case may be, but that's not in Cook County because people are not being punitive. Kim Fox did a lot of work when it comes down to exonerating people that were wrongfully convicted, but she had a very dismal track record when it comes down to pushing for justice and on the prosecution side. I think some of her biggest failures was trying to be too connected to the machine. And uh, she made a lot of, she, she actually, uh, like the justice and less situation, a perfect example, she did a favor for somebody, and next you know she got caught up in a bunch of mess. But that was just the tip of the iceberg because a lot of people just don't, a lot of criminals per se, they just don't fear the criminal justice system. Right. They don't fear being prosecuted or anything like that. Right. And why would they go take a you know a minimum wage job, which is pretty high now, I think it's $14, when they can be selling drugs or selling weapons and making money in cash tax-free? I mean, how do you convince that person to get back into like what a, they yeah. should normally be doing? But, you, you know, on that, too, I mean, just to add, we've been saying that forever, and that, that dynamic has existed forever, and it exists all over the country. And yet Chicago somehow has it worse than everywhere else, and it continues to have it worse. It's been worse for a long time than everyone else, just about, and it continues to be. So there's something else going on specifically in Chicago that isn't going on in L.A., New York, New Orleans, and elsewhere. Well, what I'm talking about, that's what I'm talking about, a cultural shift. But let me be clear with your listeners there. If you're... I don't care if you're 15, 14, 15 years old, all the way to 80 years old. If you decide to pick up a gun and go hurt somebody and carjack somebody, that means in your mind you're willing to accept whatever comes your way. We have to stop being real nice when it comes down to people pulling out guns on people and, and, and breaking the law. That's number one. And the young guys told me this. I volunteer in the Cook County Jail every Friday morning. I, I meet with the young guys. I work with that population. So I'm, I'm basically echoing what some of the young guys are telling me. They're saying to me, look here, if I made a decision to do this, I have to deal with it. Definitely I want to be free from jail, no doubt about it. But the reality, I decided to break the law and commit that crime. And we have to t- take it just like that. Too many people are being too, what you might say, why? trying to overanalyze, why, 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 overanalyze why did, situations. Yeah, when you talk to them, they say, why did you make that decision? What do they say? Well, they make decision. It's not even based on poverty, believe it or not. Some people make I believe it. It's based, some guys are just out there. They, 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 they're given a peer pressure. They, they, wanna, they call it like exciting for them to go carjack somebody or pull a gun on somebody. So I had a young guy also told me, you can give some guys, not all guys. So I don't want to just make a blanket statement. You can give a guy a job. His only job is to go to sleep. Some of the guys will wake up out of sleep and quit the job, okay? This is coming from the voices of the young guys that I work with on a regular basis. Wow. <laughs> don't, don't get me wrong, Dan. And Amy, a lot of young guys are doing okay because I don't want like, to make no general No, I, I statement, we got but, it. You know what I mean? So the bottom line, you got to have credible messages that can go out and help change mindsets with these young guys. And during my career, I helped hire over 300 ex-offender type of individuals. So I believe in second chances. I don't want to come off like it's all about locking people up. I believe that everybody deserves a second chance. But in the meantime, if you break the law, if you get caught and convicted, you have to accept that no matter what anyway. Yeah, not everybody deserves a second chance. It depends on what you did. But I, I, get, your, I, get, yeah, yeah, I get your general attitude. No, I, I hear you. T.O. Hardiman, Executive Director for Violence Interrupters NFP, his book he was mentioning, Interrupting Gun Violence, The Public Health Approach, Tio, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on my website. It's violenceinterrupters.org, and I appreciate you very much. Very much, yeah. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook. 
or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Talking about uh, the conversation we had with Tio Hardiman and uh, the violent crime that's endemic to Chicago and increasingly Chicago land. Um, more evidence that uh, Pritzker's purge law, the so-called Safety Act, which is uh, as most of these legislative measures are, uh, an antonym to its impact. The title is an antonym to the impact, less safe. Jason Riley brings us a new study from two Stetson University sociologists. The notion that the U.S. criminal justice system is stacked against black people has gained currency since the death of George Floyd, which we now have to look at in new light. Thanks to that uh, Fall of Minneapolis documentary. I love that. It's on YouTube. You can watch it for yourselves. Rumble as well. Yep. Uh, in case it gets taken off of YouTube, which is not unlikely. Uh, Riley, over at the Journal, uh, continues, It's often cited, the death of George Floyd, as a basis for everything from ending cash bail and closing prisons to legalizing drugs, decriminalizing petty theft, and offering reparations to the descendants of slaves. Right, everything that's happening in Chicago and Illinois. And all the things that should be undone if we were serious about taking concrete steps to make the region safer. Two Stetson University sociologists, Christopher Ferguson and Sven Smith, analyzed 51 studies on sentencing disparities published between 2005 and 2022. And they conclude the following. Overrepresentation among perpetrators of crime explains incarceration disparities to a greater degree than does racism in the criminal justice system. In other words, writes Riley, blacks are incarcerated at higher rates than other groups because they commit crimes at higher rates, not due to systemic bias. Some of the studies found that, quoting the studies, race had little clear impact on criminal adjudication, while others found actually that black defendants receive more lenient sentences than whites. The authors note that, quote, better quality studies were less likely to produce results supportive of disparities which raises the possibility that conventional wisdom about race and criminal justice is not only misguided, but also drawing on sloppy research. Again, back to the study, our results suggest that for most crimes, criminal adjudication in the U.S. is not substantially biased on race or class lines. Even for drug crimes, there appear to be very small race differences. These findings do not mean there is not potential for bias in other areas, such as police treatment, arrests, other outcomes. But overall, perceptions of bias in U.S. criminal adjudications do not seem proportionate to the available evidence. And by the way, this is exactly what Roland Fryer, the economist at Harvard, found when he looked into this as well. Roland Fryer, black man, and said uh, of his findings, I went in expecting that the data would prove my sort of disposition on the issue, which was, yes, there's going to be some evidence of racial disparities. And I came out without the evidence to support it, to support that belief. So I had to change my belief because the evidence doesn't support it. And the evidence doesn't support the things that have been done in Chicago and Illinois based on that same predicate, that structural racism 
is endemic to the criminal justice system as it's you know wired into America's DNA. It's nonsense. This is, you know, times change. Uh, people evolve or devolve. It happens uh, both. It's unevenly distributed. And as Shelby Steele has said, structural racism in this country is over. Are there racists that still exist? And do you have racial incidents as one-offs? Of course. 330 million people in the country, 2.6 in Chicago. You're going to have instances, particularly in a city that's as de facto segregated as Chicago is, the worst in the country. And by the way, who's lorded over that de facto segregation? Yeah, right. Socialists. Anyway. Systemic racism is over. Stop it. And I wish people would take the evidence and speak succinctly on it, because it would make for not only a more collegial society by marginalizing these race hustlers, but also a safer one, because people wouldn't be buffaloed into supporting policies that make them less safe, which is exactly what the Illinois electorate did. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. And, you know, it's just sad that it takes um, getting mugged in reality, not mugged by reality. In reality, yeah. In reality to awaken people. Um, this uh, uh, guy... Which is, I guess, an independent journalist in Chicago, uh, tweeted at me that his story. Just wanted to share it. Just another story. I mean, again, as and actually, as Tio Hardiman said, you know, you got to get beyond the data and tell the stories too. And I agree with right. him. So this is an open letter to BLM Brandon, members of the City Council, Cook County State Attorney Kim Fox, his congressman Mike Quigley. This guy's name is Richard Pollardy. He uh, says he's an independent journalist who's resided in Chicago most of his adult life, lived in Ravenswood, Logan Square. He now lives in North Center neighborhood. Violently mugged while walking in River North Saturday, September 23rd, during the early hours of the morning following a dinner with my brother. I had intended on walking through the loop and catching the brown line going north in order to get home. However, the brown line was operating with nearly a 40-minute delay. Hmm. So I decided rather than splurging on an Uber meal, I would walk toward the Chicago stop in the hope that uh, a train miracle, a train might miraculously arrive by the time I got there. And, you know, talks about walking the city. It's something that he likes to do, particularly at night, the architecture and the lighting and the river and, you know, of course, all the stuff that we know. For most of my life, it's been safe with uh, an exception where he was a victim of a hit and run six years ago. On that night, however, I found that... I found out the hard way it's no longer the case. While stopped at the crosswalk at Wells in Ohio, five men came up behind me, shoved me to the ground, stole my belongings, my backpack, my gym bag, my credit cards, driver's license, my keys, and cell phone. They rifled my pockets, nearly tearing my shorts off. I sustained abrasions in all my limbs and on the back of my head and a sprained left arm. Thankfully, a kind young man stopped and called the police. I wish I remembered his name. He did not have to stop, and he did. I'm enormously grateful. He waited with me until they arrived. By my estimation, it took at least 15 minutes. Though I did not have my phone. It may have taken as long as 30. That's what I recall. Um, that's what I recall the man who waited with me telling police. Um, he um, goes on to say, I'm profoundly aware I was actually quite lucky in the situation. Others who've had similar encounters have been stabbed, shot, beaten. Some have even sustained 
life-altering injuries or died. They come from all walks of life, all age groups, all ethnicities. Some are students, some are parents, some are well-off, others come from economically disadvantaged backgrounds, some live here, others are visitors. All of us have a right to walk safely home at night without fear of having our belongings taken or being physically injured. I found myself hesitating to write about this experience. I do not subscribe to a victim mentality. I value resilience and fortitude. I was assaulted when I was in college because I was homosexual, and regretfully I declined to pursue charges. I just want to get on with my education and my adolescent indulgences. But I cannot stay silent about this when I know I have been treated unfairly and that many more have been treated even more unfairly. If by sharing a humiliating and unpleasant situation that affected me, I can move the needle even slightly in favor of greater emphasis on public safety, it will have been worth it. So, I, you know, I don't know. You know, this is, we've talked about this before, another Chicago story. I, I, you know, you have empathy for uh, the victims like this guy and every other victim, and you get uh, riled up by how uh, predators, particularly repeat predators, are treated by the criminal justice system. But it just doesn't seem to awaken enough people in Chicago and Cook County and Chicago land from their slumber. Um, but I'm not sure what else to do other than tell the stories and maybe connect people to other people. And you start to build some sort of momentum for a paradigm shift. And that starts at the ballot box. But, you know, you heard our conversation with Tio Hardiman about the Cook County State's Attorney's race. And I like Bob Fioretti, um, but, you know, he's, who's running as a Republican. What chance does somebody with an R in front of their name have in Cook County? Kim, I mean, uh, Clayton, that uh, uh, Clayton William, what was his name? No, uh, um, the, 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 the Preckwinkle, the Preckwinkle pick um, or this uh, this judge. I mean, you know. This is all more of the same. I mean, I don't think Fioretti would be more of the same, but again, what chance does somebody with an R in front of their name have in Cook County? You see some sort of uh, epiphany happening between now and uh, November? I don't know. I don't know what to tell you on this. I like is Bob Fioretti. Well, yeah. I mean, the other two are. Clayton Harris the third. Clayton Harris, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Handpicked by that that should be a warning sign. I mean, they need to have um counseling groups for people who've been victimized in Chicago. <laughs> they just do. Because the story that you read could be read over by my neighbor who was attacked. And it's, it's and it, you just know it's not if it's when it's gonna happen to you. Well, but but again, and then the reaction is what? The reaction to the the scream ad I did last year oh during the uh during the the campaign um, is uh, for um, the victim to be upset with me, upset with me, um, because I profile what happened to her. I didn't identify her, so on and so forth. But trying to wake people up, I would think that she would want people to wake up to what's happening in her leafy Lakeview neighborhood where she was accosted by three guys who ran out of a car and jumped her. In broad daylight while she was just walking down the street. So instead of being you, mad at the guys that did that to her, she was mad at you, which I found very. Yeah. Well, and of course, all and so, you know, and I got all this other uh, uh, moral indignation from all of these other awfuls and, and male impersonators in Chicago as well. The guy who gets winged by a bullet walking down the sidewalk with his uh, 
significant other and says, yeah, it's just big city living. Right, it's big city living. I mean, you get shot, that's just the price of living in a big city. That's the attitude. Or the woman we brought you who said, oh, I'm just going to go down in my basement and just pretend this isn't happening. She actually said that. To a channel yeah. two reporter. Well, and the the the, uh, <laughs> okay. the the family, uh, the the mom and daughter that were carjacked in their uh, uh, in their driveway in Beverly, and what what do we know about them? And then robbed a week later, they stole yeah. their other car. And, and and what do we know about them? I think the the intel we had on them is left. Mm-hmm. So, and 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 at, how about the shooting of Danny Golden, the cop? In Beverly, and Beverly was going to lead the uprising against uh, Fox and against and and in in the mayor's race and against Jelly Belly and against the Safety Act and didn't happen. I mean, come on. So I mean, Teal Hardeman's talking about a cultural shift in the black neighborhoods, but um, uh, the 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 attitude adjustment needs to happen citywide, and I. I I just don't see where it's happening at all, except in one-offs when people are, uh, you know, as I said, mugged in reality. Then of sort, then of sort of say, "Oh my gosh, the city's not the city it used to be. The city's not safe anymore." Now I realize it. I don't know. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word APP to 64636 to download the app today. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560 The Answer. Of course, last year was a dismal year in Illinois, even though it was a great year for school choice around the country, because uh, thanks to, well, the choices that the Illinois electorate made to give uh, Democrat socialists, and by extension, their teachers union financiers, supermajorities in the General Assembly, and reelect one Governor Jellybelly, combined with uh, Republicans who exist in name only. You know, the rhino term, Republicans name only me, you're not, like not really Republican. Republicans are not just are, are in name only here. They exist in name only. Where were they to be found? A little bit towards the end when it was well too late and mostly in the Senate. But there was no appetite for the fight. So and, that inclu- and that includes by the, uh, the uh, school choice organizations that had uh, – led the fight when the tax credit scholarship was first enacted five years ago and signed by Governor Rauner. Where were they? Where was the campaign? Where was the profiling of the families and the kids who were the beneficiaries, as well as the 30,000 families and kids that were queued up to access tax credit scholarships? Oh, they sent a couple of buses to Springfield to get beaten up in a back alley by legislators who shined them onto their face and then, of course, do the bidding of the teachers unions. People don't even make the connection between Governor Pritzker telling Chris Welch, the House Speaker, to kill the thing. Chris Welch being the governor's hatchet man. While he plays Pontius Pilate, well, you know, if they send it to my desk, uh, well, no, I'll address it then. 
Uh huh. So he just took scholarships away from ten thousand kids, lower income, minorities, mostly minority yeah. families. And now and, they're going to have to go to their neighborhood schools, right? And 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 nary a crossword was said, other than here and a few other repositories. Big Shoulders Fund. The uh, Cardinal, Empower Illinois. And then they're taking away selective enrollment. That's more choice. And I even text or I tweeted back at Stacey Davis Gates. You know, I said, as a mother of two Chicago public school students, non-selective enrollment, I asked how these elite high schools are going to be accepting students in the future. And then she blocked me. Uh, Katie Hobbs is... Uh... Making plans to do something similar, although I think in Arizona she's going to have a lot tougher time. She's putting her political career on the line the way that um, Jelly Belly didn't have to here because, of course, there's no alternative party. In Arizona there is, Mm -hmm. and it's popular, the school choice program. Um, She's uh, talking about uh, school choice blowing a hole in the state budget and so on and so forth. So we need some more oversight of how – taxpayer dollars are spent. No, you you don't, actually. That's not the point of the scholarship program. The point of the scholarship program is you empower parents with resources, and then parents make the decisions in consultation with the schools of choice, the schools where their kids get in, whatever the case may be. And uh, government is out of that business, uh, being a, a hurdle between school and parent, and mostly, usually, particularly in the case of people like Katie Hobbs, being... Uh, allied with the teachers union and the government school system, thus the impediment that they are trying to present. Uh huh. We'll see how that goes. That's a real opportunity for Republicans in Arizona to make hay of this in an election year. And this K through 12 issue, given how bad K through 12 education was performing pre pandemic. And then what happened in terms of the stunting of kids intellectual development as so evidenced by test scores over the last couple of years. This is this, even though it's not mainly a federal issue, of course, it's a state and local issue. This becomes a national issue. And I hope Republicans seize the opportunity in places like Arizona, these swing states and nationally, Wisconsin, in a way that Republicans and school choice proponents in Chicago and Illinois chose not to. Uh, For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by, uh, well, uh, someone from a state that has been a little bit more successful with this uh, and uh, also really was the the state that broke the seal on school choice back uh, 30 years, well, 33 years ago about with uh, Governor Tommy Thompson and a Democrat uh, city councilwoman named Polly Williams. Or was she a state legislator? I can't remember. But anyway, C.J. Safer is the CEO of the Institute for Reforming Government in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. He joins us now. C.J., thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Good morning, Dan, Amy. How are we doing? Good. I mean, we're doing less well than you're doing in Wisconsin on this issue, obviously. But um, you wrote a, a good piece in the Wall Street Journal about just how school choice, and this is normally what happens in states. Illinois is the first ever, of course, that you have a school choice program, you build a constituency, and then it usually uh, builds political power and it stays. That's what's happened in Wisconsin and most of the, and, and every other school choice program. Not so in Illinois, but but how, but but there was a move with Tony Evers being the governor there and a teachers union flack himself. There was a move from the teachers unions to try to uh, 
rein in the school choice program in Wisconsin, and it failed. Tell us that story. Yeah, well, it starts with the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. We elect our justices. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have had a conservative majority of the state Supreme Court for really for about 15 years. And it's been, you know, you talk about rhinos. We don't really have that in the state Supreme Court. We've had a state Supreme Court full of uh, Scalia's, if uh, you will. And they were instrumental in following the Constitution and upholding the rule of law. What's happened in the last uh, three or four years is um, as Wisconsin kind of unfortunately lurched uh, to the left, uh, we've lost control of the state Supreme Court. So the state Supreme Court, as of uh, August of last year, is a liberal, uh, I would say, hard progressive majority. So with that flip in the state Supreme Court, there's been a ripple effect, a lot of litigation being discussed, a lot of litigation being happening. Um, our, our maps uh, for redistricting have been completely thrown out. Uh, and there was the unions that obviously saw this op- opportunity, which is, well, how can we really go after Wisconsin's school voucher program, Wisconsin's independent public charter schools? And what they did, did in October, um, of course, your listeners will love uh, this. There was, a, there was a, a super PAC that was formed. Uh, for all the talk of dark money, uh, the left formed a super PAC uh, uh, called the Manaqua Brewery Super PAC that uh, raised money to essentially file a lawsuit against um, kids and students in the school choice programs. They filed a lawsuit in October uh, of, of last year. The attorney for the case uh, was, he said, the quiet part out loud, he said in an interview that the lawsuit would, quote, kick out a bunch of low-income kids from schools, end, end quote. Um, and it would jeopardize uh, over 60,000 students who attend a charter school, who use a school voucher to attend a private school of their own choosing. The lawsuit was based upon, you know, going right at the, the funding mecha- mechanisms going right after some constitutional provisions on uh, what they would say lack of oversight. Um, And when it was filed in October, it was a huge deal because, you know, they filed, uh, the super PAC filed it directly with the state Supreme court. And you saw like immediately all these private school leaders, charter school leaders, that a dark cloud was above them because they didn't know if they were going to be operating within 12 months because we have such a progressive Supreme court. A lot of people thought that the programs were in real jeopardy. Um, as they wrote in the wall street journal piece that you mentioned, um, there was a huge backlash. Uh, the Wisconsin Institute for law and Liberty, a uh, public interest law firm here, they filed a brief uh, on behalf of 22 different clients, parents, private school leaders, charter school leaders from all across the the, uh, state. Um, We interviewed a number of parents. Um, You know, Charlene Roberts is a woman that we spoke to. She uh, attends uh, college here in uh, Wisconsin. She attended a charter school in Milwaukee, and she was uh, flat out that, you know, told, told us that this lawsuit would prevent me, would have prevented me from getting a good education. Because in Wisconsin, if you're not using school choice and you're in the urban areas, you're pushed 
um, much like in Chicago, you're pushed into some of the worst uh, schools in the state. Yeah, but, Milwaukee, but he... Yeah, but here, here's the thing that's curious about what happened on this uh, the, with this lawsuit and this effort is, well, Tony Evers got reelected. Um, you, you, this, you know, the, the the leftists won that state supreme, that latest state supreme court race that's throwing the electoral map into question, and among other things, including this, and um, and so so you know, Ron Johnson barely won reelection. So you mm-hmm. think like, well, wait a second, this this topography in Wisconsin seems to be pretty favorable to the teachers unions on, you know, their core issues like eliminating competition. Um, and yet it wasn't. So what, what's the what's the underlying dynamic that explains how uh, the left was unsuccessful here when they have been more successful than not at the ballot box statewide? Because you mentioned it at the beginning uh, with school choice in Wisconsin. We've had it for over 30 years. Now, the program has been expanded. Governor Walker expanded it outside of Milwaukee into Racine, into Green Bay, into Beloit. Um, but, you know, it's it's a bit of a fabric of Wisconsin's K-12 education when you have over 60,000 mm-hmm. students, parents that are exercising their freedom to choose a school that's best fit for their kids. Um, they don't want to lose lose that. And I think, you know, we've built up such a strong constituency that, you know, we, and we may have some issues of like, you know, how do they vote? Um, you know, why aren't uh, Republicans grabbing more of them at the ballot box? But at least as far as when it comes to school choice, people don't want to see kids kicked out of schools. And um, there was a poll that was done uh, by the State Chamber of Commerce that showed, you know, even though Wisconsin is lurching to the left, um, 58 percent of Wisconsin voters would be less likely to support a Supreme Court justice who would vote to end school choice. And that's almost 60 percent of Wisconsin voters did not, were disapproved of this lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, with all the media attention that this got, um, of course, you know, the media very rarely depicts this issue fairly. Um, that was really telling. And, you know, when I just look at, at this, I just think that, you know, this is a, you know, an issue of freedom and an uh, issue of giving kids a lifeline, a uh, second lifeline to success and achievement. And I think a lot of voters just look at that as something that, that's just basic good public policy. And the longer that good public policy is entrenched, the harder it is to overturn. And that's what happened in December when the state Supreme Court uh, rejected to even hear this uh, case by the the, uh, super PAC, um, unanimously unsealed. They um, sent it back and just said, no, we're not going to hear the case. So the battle is always going to continues. Uh, the unions are not going to stop. They're going to figure out how to go at this a different way, uh, probably so, more by death by a thousand cuts. So but what av- right now we scored a major win. So what advice would you give to Arizona Republicans? Keep, keep on fighting. Um, but also, you know, you want to make sure, you know, Arizona's had school, school choice for some time, too. But you've got to get parents that have their voices heard. You exactly. Have school leaders. And also teachers. We lose this teacher issue not realizing that there's teachers that attend charter schools. There's teachers that attend 
private schools. They work, they work there. They're embedded into the community. And we have to have those voices that are the most prominent because that's what's going to win the day. You have to amplify them. You have to put you – know, have, you have to have them be the faces of a campaign to protect, to fight back, right? I mean this is not like send them to the General Assembly to, or the state legislature to talk to some legislators behind closed doors. This is out public, in the public square, making the case, telling their stories. And a part of it in Wisconsin was if this lawsuit was successful, 60,000 kids would have uh, been forced back into the public schools. But there's not enough seats for these kids, and there's not enough seats. There's no, you know, all the good public schools, uh, some of them have admissions uh, in Milwaukee, and the others uh, have massive wait lists. I think this is why the most fascinating part of the last few months was Despite, as you mentioned, Governor Tony Evers being against school choice, he was silent on this lawsuit. His administration filed a brief actually agreeing with the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, saying, eh, maybe you shouldn't hear this case. Uh, Senator Tammy Baldwin, who's up for re-election uh, this year, was silent on the lawsuit. The Democratic uh, leadership in the state capitol, also very silent on the lawsuit. I think this is something that's just not politically popular because it's been around for over 30 years. And it's working. C.J. Safer is the CEO of the Institute for Reforming Government in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. C.J., thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great week. You too, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Hear about the big stories of the day, then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So a lot of attention is being paid to uh, Bill Ackman, who's a Harvard alum and a billionaire investor, CEO of his capital firm, Pershing Square. And uh, he has been one of the more outspoken critics of Claudine Gay's testimony before that House committee and then uh, been beating the drum for her ouster. Now he's actually calling for those uh, uh, members of the board of the Harvard Corp, including the saintly Penny Pritzker, to uh, step down as well. Anybody who supported Claudine Gay in the wake of her testimony and then the subsequent documentation of her failure to document the ideas of others, we call that plagiarism. Um, But I... So he wrote this 4,000-word post on Twitter that turned into a op-ed at the Free Press, Barry Weiss's outfit. i got to say, I mean, I just, I'm unimpressed. We're supposed to, like, be hailing this? Oh, oh, the scales have fallen from the eyes of another billionaire? I mean, shame on him for being so ignorant, which he sort of concedes in his piece about what was happening as alma mater for all this this time. He 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 feigns, or I shouldn't say feigns because I don't know. He claims claims to also be ignorant about what DEI meant all this time. Up until a month ago, all, I mean, all the ink that was spilled on DEI for many years. Uh, you're you're not familiar with uh, Larry Fink at uh, BlackRock and. Uh, all these other purveyors of DEI, what's going on in corporate boardrooms. I mean, this is your 
bailiwick. This is your universe. Forget the university system. You, you had no idea. Well, and you, you, gave it, you gave it no reflection, connecting dots. And all of a sudden, I mean, stuff that we knew right away said right. I mean, years ago, his piece, um, the, e in equity, the E in DEI or DIE, stands for equity, which is a quality of outcome, not a quality of opportunity. Oh, really? You don't say, Bill. Honestly, I know we're supposed to give enough room for people to come over to our side, but um, make sure you're not inviting an enemy inside the perimeter because they're saying some of the right things now. And let me give you an example why I don't trust Bill Ackman, who was die-addled. I've always been, he you know, goes on, I've always been a supporter of diversity. Who isn't? If you're for equality of opportunity, you're a supporter of diversity. Diversity doesn't need a state sponsor. It occurs naturally. People with different of different races and religions have different talents and abilities, and they will find their way if you allow them to, rather than have central planners select the percentage to be here and to be there. I'm a supporter of diversity. I've done the same at Pershing Square when we completed one of the largest IPOs ever with the substantive assistance of a number of minority-owned, women-owned, and veteran-owned investment banks. And I work with small banks. I work with... Minority-owned banks and the, their bond offering. I don't care. I don't care. I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a supporter of um, our friend Robert Blackwell's perspective. You know, um, make a point of trying to do business with uh, black entrepreneurs and other entrepreneurs to bring them into the universe of uh, 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 of free enterprise and and expand the support for the free enterprise system. That makes sense. I agree. I mean, but he's always, you know, merit-based, qualified. Yeah, of course. Sure, no problem. Hap, hap, absolutely. But, you know, if you're going to make a point, then just make the point. You don't have to then, like, sort of reflexively and defensively credentialize yourself. as You know, he's basically saying, I'm not a white supremacist. I'm not a conservative, which is, you know, those two phrases are synonymous to the Harvard set, the Ivy League set. You, you know, I've done good. Don't come after me. I find it all rather insulting, to be honest. While, uh, you know, sort of, sort of conservatives, uh, at least free enterprise conservatives like Barry Weiss or you know, and, and others are trying to platform this and celebrate it because this is what we're supposed to do. It's like what we're supposed to do anytime, like Bill Maher says something that is not completely uh, from the cultural Marxist playbook when he when he dares to criticize some. A Democrat hack who's uh, doing the their party and their movement harm. And oh, Bill, did you see what Bill Maher said? Who cares what Bill Maher said? What do you think he's on our side now? He's part of the movement. He's a merit over equity guy. Come on. In another circumstance, and maybe with a little bit of time removed. You'll hear Bill Ackman compliment Mara Gay. Why? Because uh, she's also a product of the uh, system. I'm talking about the Ivy League. And she uh, has status as a member of the New York Times editorial board. And listen to what this person of status and uh, uh, the properly credentialed, listen to the quality of her thinking, her 
Mara Gay on Claudine Gay's ouster. No relation, I don't think. The thing that really disturbs me is the unrelenting campaign from the right and from some mm -hmm. conservative activists to uh, slander, discredit, and ultimately, I, I guess, uh, you know, somebody used the phrase, uh, we've claimed a scalp, I, said, I think, on uh, social media, you know, to essentially unseat gay and other presidents as well um, when they don't like, uh, you know, the, not just the handling of uh, the horrific attacks on Israel on October 7th, the way that that was handled on campus, but really anything else uh, that they don't like about uh, not just these presidents, but actually what they would call wokeism on campus. Mm -hmm. So this is really an attack on academic freedom. It's an attack on uh, people who are pluralists and believe that you should bring people from all over the world together uh, of diverse backgrounds and that you, you actually have more scholarly rigor and, and more um, value can be uh, brought by having people from different backgrounds. This is an attack on diversity. This is an attack on multiculturalism and on many of the values that a lot of us hold dear. And in fact, anybody really who is around my age in their 30s who went to any uh, public, major public university or private university in this country, you know, these are values that are very important. Um, and I think exactly. Yeah. Any per, any person in the 30s who went to a big public university or a private university like I did there. Uh, these are our values. Exactly. That's the problem. Academic. I mean, this is all Orwellian speak or new speak. This is uh, academic freedom uh, is a feature of wokeism. Wokeism stamps out academic freedom. I mean, talking about diversity at Harvard, where they just got uh, excoriated for their racist admissions policy manipulating the character scores of Asians to reduce the Asian population among their student body, please. For more on all this, please be joined by Professor Will Riley, Associate Professor of Poli-Sci, Kentucky State University, author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Will, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Always good to be on the show. So, um, Bill Ackman, am I being uh, too too hard on billionaire Bill or... Should we be celebrating, or or uh, what do you think? No, I think your take's about right. I call this normie lag, where something that's been discussed between, you know, actual, quote-unquote, intellectual dark web types, um, quote-unquote, dissident right people, even, even real SJWs online for two or three years, like maybe the COVID vaccine didn't work perfectly, suddenly kind of pops up into the public mainstream. And, and you're exactly right. Like, there are these outlets that kind of feed that out there to tell people that they can say it now. So I actually like Bill Maher a lot. But he, he's the classic guy that does this, right? Like, okay, maybe we can admit we've gone too far, the Atlantic magazine, so on down the line. So that's kind of what this is. I mean, Ackman... I read his Twitter post. It's about you know, 4,000, 5,000 words long. It's an essay. And he goes into this discussion about how he loves diversity and he's not a racist, but he suddenly realized that DEI in the corporate sense, affirmative action is problematic. And, you know, my, my take on that is good. I mean, you can handle that from the left side of the fence. But, yes, it, it is correct that many, many people have said this for, for years now. And it's a, 
pretty obvious point. Well, and Ackman, I mean, he did all that work writing, you know, those 4,000 words. And in just a few hours, Al Sharpton's group, National Action Network, um, they're going to pick it outside his office to protest his involvement in the firing of gay. Yeah, but but the but the problem I have with that is, I mean, that gives Ackman a credential he doesn't deserve. Like he's some important uh, 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 theorist or commentator on this issue, and he's uh, he's a complete novice. He's a he's a I mean, he's a cipher, frankly. Yeah, I I do think it's a little harder to come out against these things if you're on the political left. Like if you're a good Democrat, if you work for Pershing Square, if you're on the board of Harvard, you're focused in the humanities. So, I mean, like, if I say, you know, affirmative action, just like legacy programs, is a vehicle that puts a lot of unqualified people in the upper middle class, no one really cares. I'm a right-wing writer. No one's going to come down to Kentucky and, you know, climb a hill and pick it outside my house, (laughs) you know. But, I mean, like, if you're Bill Ackman, if you're Barry Weiss, it takes genuine hootspot to say the New York Times is slanting way too far to the left they're publishing pieces that that are really damaging their credibility, you know, our credibility for her at the time. You're you're censoring U.S. senators in the op-ed pages. I mean, that that's why Barry Weiss was removed from the publication. So yeah, yeah I mean, Ackman is going to. They're not going to go picket Fox News with those arms. No, of course. Cars. I mean, he but, yeah, he's going to be the guy who has you know the chanting protesters outside his office, scaring the staff. So it it's harder to be. What would it be? A heretic. Than just an atheist, it's harder to reject what all of your own team is supposed to think. So yeah, he's a, he's a kind of a windy guy, but kudos to him for saying that. Yeah, I mean, I I just it's like first of all, I I don't trust that he's really made a move. I think this is, you know, the timing of this, and and I I don't trust that he won't make a move back. The fact that he's even on that side speaks to a complete lack of of critical thinking and self reflection. And um, I'm sorry, you're a billionaire. And you're worried about Al Sharpton? Oh, I don't know. I got to consider whether I'm going to say what I know to be true because Al Sharpton and a couple of goons may protest outside my office. And to say what I know to be true in the face of that is courage? No, I don't think so. Not not to meet the moment. If you believe that this is the threat that it is to uh, free society, uh, uh, not just free enterprise, but I mean freedom writ large, then I mean the idea that I have to suffer a couple of slings and arrows at uh, a cocktail party hosted by uh, Schlesenberger or, or, or somebody else. I mean, that that is not courage to me. No, that that that's I just no. Uh uh-uh. That's not a big yeah, deal. It's, it's not it's not battlefield courage. Yeah, I mean, he's he's writing op eds. You know, I think I think he'll make it. I think he'll get through to the next day. Yeah, no but kidding. There, there there is that question of will you come out against the craziest things that your own side says. And you, you see these internal debates within the right, too, where there'll be violent rage because someone printed a calendar full of attractive conservative women. Or there were, you know, real discussions in fairly mainstream states like Indiana of should we oppose abortion starting after conception? And I, I think there are a lot of people that frankly think a lot of fairly mainstream positions, at least online, are insane. There's just some reluctance about saying that and then, you know, arguing with people all day for the next three weeks. Like, I've had that experience. It wastes the time that I would use to make money or write. So, you know, Ackman is is doing that on his side. But, yes, it, it is absolutely legitimate to notice that for three or four years, 
half of the country and most of the right has been making these obvious points. You know, like the the idea of equity promoted by Ibram Kendi means proportional representation of every race and sex group in every job, regardless of how qualified they are. And that's that's absolutely crazy. When you look at like the search of the Marines for female officers or there's a 150 black to white SAT gap, we are closing that a little bit. When you look at the Ivy League looking for professors, I mean, the things that people have been saying are mandatory, are nuts and impossible. And yeah, there's been a lot of ostriching about that throughout the American upper middle class. Like everything BLM said was crazy. Most of Harvard's institutional goals, they want what, 12% black professors by the end of this decade are nuts. So, you know, it's good people are noticing this now, but it's been out there for a while. Right. And I mean, this is all while, you know, Ibram Kendi was giving uh, $50,000 speeches at their universities and Ta-Nehisi Coates was winning book prizes and so on and so forth. I mean, it's not like this sprang up uh, out of nowhere. And as you say, people weren't connecting the dots. I guess that's just my frustration. Um, but 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 I wonder I wonder if you think that, you know, setting uh, all that aside, that there is a real coming to a recognition that it's safer to come out and say the things uh, that are obvious like Ackman is, or if this is a moment that will quickly that quickly pass once uh, once things calm down uh, in Cambridge? Well, I think there are a couple levels there. So first of all, something important that you just hit on is that everyone knows at some level that the extreme woke claims, like all of society today in the affirmative action era is set up to oppress black people, are crazy. Almost everyone knows that at some level. I mean, I asked one of the basic questions about kind of the trans rights uh, push on social media a couple months ago, and the question was just, are there women that have penises? <laughs> and this was totally anonymous, and I'm, I'm a social scientist, so I linked okay. to SurveyMonkey, and I, I just genuinely asked, yeah. And I was curious what people would say, because I have kind of a quote-unquote bro audience. But all of those people's, you know, feminist girlfriends and current wives and so on followed the page as well. So I thought I'd get maybe 30% yes, they do, they're trans women or women. And in fact, the vote was, there's something like 10,000 votes, and the vote was 98 to 2, no to yes. So I, I think most people understand what biological sex is. I think most people know the old race wars or 1954, I mean, 60, 70 years in the past. It, it's just kind of awkward to say that if you're on the political left, if you live in a big city. So, yeah, but now there is considerably more room to do that with all of these obvious normal people, Chris Rufo, James Lindsay, you know, sometimes Marr himself making these points. So you're going to see more people come kind of like sneaking out and, and going, yeah, this has gotten a little crazy. And to me, kind of last point, but I do think the Israel-Hamas war was a real breaking point for a lot of people, and by no means just Jewish Americans, or by no means just the alumni of a particular college, but people were looking at some of these universities, gas the Jews happened in Sydney, but you're seeing students walk around with kafeas on, chanting yeah. from the river to the sea, you know, we everyone knows what actually happened during the October 7th massacre, so a lot of people kind of realized, okay, this is crazy. Like, we're paying $80,000 a year for Johnny to go here, and they're actually cheering for terrorists. Like, we've got to crack down on this. It isn't funny anymore, and I think that's where we are right now. Will Riley, Associate Professor of Poli Sci, Kentucky State University, author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Will, thank you as always. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line.
Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.